This is Did Not Need to Know. I'm Jenna. And I'm Danielle. I love true crime. And I hate it. We are sisters, and this is a comedy true crime podcast where I scare Danielle every week with stories that she did not need to know. Follow us to listen. Did Not Need to Know, streaming everywhere, released on Mondays. We are on Instagram at Did Not Need to Know and Facebook and Twitter at DNNTK Podcast. Bye. I'm Carmen. And I'm Joanna. <laughs> and welcome to Live, Laugh, Murder, True Crime Edition. Yes. I'm excited. Okay, now say what you just said. I feel like we haven't recorded in a long time. Because we haven't. I know. That We're, darn hurricane. That daggone hurricane that uh, kind of came and screwed things up for us. Really screwed things up. I was listening to the hurricane one that you and Molly did, and uh-huh. I was crying. Like I started crying doing it. Hearing you guys talk about like seeing it sit over where me and A- intern Amy live. <laughs> yeah. It was like... It's like that's got that had been so scary. Like just watching, like this is where your friends are living, and yeah. like who knows if they're gonna make it. I know yeah. it's it's a lot. It is. So in lieu of that, you guys are obviously aware of the hurricane that we were just blasted with yeah. in our county. So in lieu of excuse me, our Florida man segment, we decided to switch it up and do a Florida thank you. Yes, to all the linemen and first responders and just everybody who's come out to help repair and rebuild our thank you our city yeah it's been scary um i looked it up and there was over forty-two thousand linemen that came here and it's they had the police um what is it called the motorcades mm-hmm. anytime the linemen were driving where they were going through those roads and just everyone just kind of pulled over and let them go yeah, I was, <laughs> give me my power yeah i was headed up to um central florida where my in-laws live police cars and just like the army van truck things yeah the tanks yes it was it was it's weird to like think that this is what you're we're living through right now like it's happening to us i know um so thank you to all the linemen yes that have come from all over the country not just linemen first First responders. responders you guys were here instantly and they're staying at um (laughs) <laughs> JetBlue, where so the Red Sox play. We have a spring training field here in um, Fort Myers, Florida. And this, the, what is it? Good Lord. Jet the Red Blue. Sox yes. have, they play here and it's a big deal. People come from all over Red yeah. Sox fans. Spring break. Yes, to watch the spring training games. Anyway, so that field is where the first responders have been staying. A lot of them, yeah. They're, they're all over the place. Are they? I think and I was, I had said to Joanna, I said, do you think that these guys <laughs> in their downtime and women, men and women, use the fields to play a little baseball? Uh, I would. I would 100%. Huge thank you. We got our power back after, I think, I think we're at day nine. And tons of supplies have yeah. been donated. Oh, my tons, gosh. Tons, tons. Man, we said we weren't going to talk about this. I know. <laughs> we can't help it. I know, but And thank you to those of you who donated to our GoFundMe. We have been able to gift... Many, many people, and a lot of people Venmoed me too with $100 gift cards, and I focused on Walmart because it's so easy. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you, first responders. And I think we're ready for a show today. 
I'm ready. We haven't recorded so long. Oh my gosh. We're usually a couple weeks ahead because of our schedules with kids and work and yes. So normally we would have recorded two episodes by now. Mm-hmm. I missed you. I missed you. Okay. You ready? It's your show. I just Let's sit go. Here. You just sit here. Whatever. <laughs> what was our last episode about? Murder at the fair. Yes, the HH. HH Holmes. So today's episode is technically a sequel to our latest one titled number 17, Murder at the Fair. So please pause us here if you haven't listened to it. You got to go back and check it out. It's our introduction to our um, true crime edition, HH Holmes, which will be two parts. So episode 17 is first. Pause here and then come right back. Yes, please do. (laughs) Please, please come right back. Um, We were talking about, we are talking about America's first serial killer, H. H. Holmes. Mm-hmm. Joanna, you had a lot of questions at the end of the last episode. You were like, but wait, I don't know anything about him. I know. But, but, and I said, nope. And I stopped you. You did. And said, this is our first multi-parter. I want to start with a quote from the Chicago Times Herald that was written after H. H. was finally indicted for some of his crimes. Okay. Quote, he is a prodigy of wickedness, a human demon, a being so unthinkable that no novelist would dare to invent such a character. Oh. The story, too, tends to illustrate the end of a century, end quote. Because I, I remember, like, just thinking how, like, not stupid, but, mm-hmm. like, remember, like, it was just so ridiculous that I was like, this has to be made up. Uh-huh. And then you said, like, no novelist would even, like, create exactly. a story. This, But it's just, I mean, because you only gave me just, just the tip. Just the <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the imagery. Um, yeah. It is, what is that quote? Where it's too... You can't make this shit up. (laughs) This episode is going to be two parts. There's just too much, and I don't want to skimp on any details. I mean, technically, it's three parts because Murder at the Fair was the intro. I read two books for this episode. I got a lot of my research from a phenomenal book by an author named Eric Larson. How do you have time to read? I I make time. Um, (laughs) Titled The Devil in the White City, Murder, Magic, and Madness at the Fair that Changed America. That's the title. That's a very long title. I know it is. Like my Florida man. Exactly. Your Florida man. (laughs) Spider man. (laughs) So please go check it out. He does a great job at telling the story in like a narrative fiction style, like how we do. Also, I read um, H.H. Holmes, The Life of the American Ripper by a company called Hourly History. Okay. And that was a very small, like, pamphlet-style book. And they put out, which, from what I looked up, that company puts out books that are, like, straight facts and about historical events and people, just to the point. Okay. I like using them. We are jumping into the who, what, where, why, when, how. It's when, why. Whatever. What is it? Who, what, where, when, why. How. How. Sometimes. No, it's sometimes Maybe. why. <laughs> <laughs> A- I- okay. Go. All right. All right. So this story of... Holmes, I'm going to use many names for him because he did, so why can't I? Okay. Was around the time of Jack the Ripper. Yes. Some even speculate that H.H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper. Wasn't he in England? At Yes. So there are like ship logs, manifests, notes, journals, random things people have found that show that he supposedly visited England at that time. Or he there was a copycat. Well, they, here's the thing. They were very different in their MO. Even though there was the time frame matches up, HH killed out of like greed and convenience. He wanted a nice, easy kill. I know, I hate to say it like that. Oh, I'm so bothered today. I can't kill anybody. I know. Um, the Ripper killed, I don't know how much you know about Jack the Ripper. He's never been caught, you know. Out in the open where no one was around, 
In short amounts of time, his murders were quick, they were precise, and he would leave behind absolutely gruesome crime scenes for people to find. Yikes. Like disembowelments, a uterus removed from a woman. Yeah, terrible, like terrible crime scenes. H.H.'s crimes were clean in in the fact that there was no crime scenes that for people to find left behind. Okay. Okay? So starting with him as a youngster. A youngster. H.H. Holmes, born Herman Webster Mudgett. (laughs) Are you laughing at his name? Mudgett. (laughs) I know, from Mudgett to Holmes. In Gilmanton Academy, New Hampshire, on May 16th, 1861. 1861. Okay. Where were you? Same place I'm always at. Not around. (laughs) Okay. As a child, he was said to be bright and was bullied because he was small and cared more about school than the other kids thought he should have. Okay. One instance describes how he was terrified of the doctor's office. He was scared of the skeletons of the human body. Oh, that's funny. So we learned that the skeletons in doctor's office at the time were humans. Yeah, I know you can donate your body to science. And not like that. Oh, I don't know. Um, so here, here's the story. The story goes that he was bullied as a kid. He was small. He was, I keep saying that, he was small. Um, And he was scared of the doctor's office, and the kids in the neighborhood knew this. So there was a time where a group of bigger boys cornered him and forced him into a doctor's office and forced him into the outstretched arms of one of the skeletons that were hanging there. Like, throw him into the deep end. How are you getting forced into a doctor's office? I know. Well, it was the 1800s. I know, you know, I know. It's, like, different. He was supposedly shrieking and str- struggling, like, freaking out. I don't like that. After this incident... It, like, cured him of his fear. Oh. Shock therapy. I know. Exactly. Um, He later says that this experience helped him get over his fear and move him in the direction of adopting medicine as his career. And killing people. Well, yeah. He didn't say that, but yeah. Herman had a brother and a sister. His dad was a farmer named Levi, and his family was part of the Methodist Church. Giving you a little little background. background. If he was in trouble, his parents were known to rely on the rod and prayer as punishment. Oh. Also for punishment, banishment to the attic and a day with no food and no speaking. What? What would cause you to punish your child that way? Not, uh, Not a damn thing. can't even think of anything. It would be literally nothing. Herman would spend his time as a kid reading Edgar Allan Poe. Oh. He would invent things because 1800s. Yeah. What, there's nothing. <laughs> That's not true, but you know. He would dabble in the hobby of collecting treasures. You know, like normal things for a young boy, like heads and skulls of yeah. animals. Sure. From around the property. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Fun stuff that he would collect himself. Herman had a best friend as a child named Tom. I want to throw out, and I don't know many details here, but Tom passed away one day after he and Herman were playing in an abandoned house. Mm, conveniently. And Tom, quote unquote, had a fall. Mm. And that's all I know about that. Yeah. I can just make your own assumptions on that one. Someone that's got all. pushed. As, that's what I would assume. I also saw in a documentary that Herman had a female cousin that was found having drowned in a lake when they were like young teens oh or teenagers. Gosh. I don't know much more than that, unfortunately, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Sure. I would too. So you asked me in the last episode in our intro to this, what, why? Why is he doing all You yeah. know, where did he come from? So this is where he came from. At 16 years old, he graduated from high school, 1800s, and became a teacher. Ooh. He moved to Alton, New Hampshire and continued teaching. During this time as a teacher, he planned on attending medical school. So he became an apprentice under Dr. Nahum Wright. Now here's the thing. 
Dr. Wright was an advocate of human dissection for the purpose of learning. As you said, donate your body to medicine. And look who his apprentice is, Herman Mudgett. This is where he learned all those things. So him being an apprentice to this man comes back later, definitely. It set him up. Herman went on to meet and marry a young Clara A. Lovering on July 4th, 1878. His first wife. His first wife. You remember that, don't you? He was married twice to two women. You would hope that that was all. Oh, God. (laughs) This marriage didn't last long. They did have a child, though, named Robert Mudgett. But after much trouble and reports of him being a general asshole husband, they broke up and he eventually moved away. Never technically divorcing, though. Mm. Mm -hmm. In 19, Herman went to medical school at the University of Vermont in Burlington. You ever been there? No. Me neither. Coat factory, yes. (laughs) Burlington Coat Factory. He found the school too small, so then moved to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Oh, go blue. Uh, Known for its emphasis on the art of dissection. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if it still is. If you have like a major medical problem, like a lot of people go there. And I can't remember because my sister's been there with her daughter. And Mm -hmm. I know a couple other people who've been there. So they must have a great medical program. They do. Basically. It's wonderful. This is where he perfected a couple of his talents. The mm-hmm. talents being chemistry and anatomy. Mm. Mm. He was able to work on cadavers in socially acceptable, in a socially acceptable way. <laughs> As <laughs> opposed bodies. to the other. Um, this was September 1882. I'm giving you a lot of dates, but I'm going in order. Okay. So just stick with that. And he later graduated in June of 1884. A hundred years before I was born. <laughs> Except not June. Around this time was also the time he committed what he called his first really dishonest act of his life. Okay. Never mind him, his friend dying and his cousin, you know, turn up drowned. Mysteriously drowning. Mysteriously. He was traveling for a book publisher to sell books, kind of working for them. But he would keep the proceeds to himself, stealing and scamming, basically. Thus beginning a lifetime of living a scammer's life. This man, who will later turn out to be nicknamed America's first serial killer, was at the start of it a grifter. Just stealing, scamming, that was his thing. Herman later moved to Morse Forks, New York, and became the principal of a grade school. Because remember, he had been a teacher. Mm. And that's a scary thought. (laughs) Until he opened a medical practice, that is. He said working at the school had him receive plenty of gratitude with little to no money, and that teaching paid poverty wages. It's crazy. Has much changed. Nothing's changed. <laughs> and on that note, if you are a teacher, we Love salute you. you. Thank you. So this is when he started planning his first life insurance scam. Do you think, Joanna, that you could tell me what would a life insurance scam consist of? You would take out a large policy on somebody and kill them. Okay. That was my first thought, too. He wasn't about to murder yet okay Okay. here's what he was trying to do he and actually got a group of buddies to do this with him they were going to do this they were going to take out life insurance policies and fake the deaths of a family of three that didn't exist not actually kill anyone and then as medical professionals acquire cadavers to use in place as a dead family whoa okay and collect the insurance money this would have given them about 40 grand which now is equivalent to over a million dollars how do you know the equivalencies you're so very smart i'm very smart with with math i'm a math well you're a math person i like you say man math salsa (laughs) i did say that i don't know why i even said it like that and i said it like three times the plan failed though because there was a a national shortage of corpses (laughs) Like how we had a national shortage of toilet paper? (laughs) 
Also, Mudgett said the insurance companies were becoming too well organized and well prepared and that they would surely find out the truth. Yes. Which nowadays, this would never fly. No. You could never get away with this. So he then took a job for a very short time at Norristown Asylum because he was a doctor. Okay. The experience he had there apparently haunted him. Uh. And asylum, asylums then... Yeah. Yeah, we all know. Speaking of the patients, he said he saw their faces long after he quit, and he quit within days. Like, it it haunted him. Continuing this epic job hunt, because he's like boom, 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 um, and Herman trying to find his path in life, apparently, he found his way into pharmacy, mm. being a pharmacist, an apothecary. Mm-hmm. First in Philadelphia, where unfortunately and sadly, a child had died after taking medicine purchased at his store. Uh-oh. And what did he do after that? He left town. He left town, moved to Chicago in July of 86, and changed his name. To H.H. To Henry, from Henry Mudgett to Henry Howard Holmes, H.H. Holmes. It has been said that he changed his name because of the growing suspicion of the boy who passed away Mm -hmm. from the pharmacy medication. How do you just change your name? 1800. I'm just going to blame all this on the 1800s. <laughs> I mean, people could run away and change their name and that's it. Be done. You have a whole new identity. Mm. Not that easy anymore. No. So now here we are, Chicago. This is what has brought him to kind of the time we were in our last episode. Now, Holmes later met a husband and wife in Chicago and he wanted a pharmacy again. That was what he found. So he offered to buy their pharmacy. The husband actually fell ill and had passed away from cancer a short while prior. So Mudgett, now Holmes, offered to buy the pharmacy from the wife, saying that she could remain living in the apartment above. And this was probably a relief for her because she could stay in her home, sell her business, and have a comfortable life. The deal went through and he renamed it H.H. Holmes Pharmacy. Strangely enough, though, the original owner, Mrs. Holton, after trying to sue Holmes for money he never paid her, she left town. On her own will? H.H. claimed she left to visit relatives in California, but she was never seen or heard from mm-hmm, again. Mm-hmm. Poof! And this happens quite frequently with him. Yeah. This is his normal story. In his pharmacy, H.H. was selling tonic solutions, like Rose Apothecary. <laughs> um, but I assure you, it was nothing like Rose Apothecary. No. The ambiance just, he didn't have it. Oh, for, for example, he sold an elixir promising to help patients maintain their overall health and youthfulness, but it was just tap water. <laughs> Apparently. Damn. Supposedly. By the end of the year, he was turning a profit, and he was also simultaneously running a scam where he would purchase properties under an alias by taking out a loan, purchase the property, and then, like, quickly in the blink of an eye resell it and keep the cash creditors would go searching for a man who never existed because he always used a fucking alias Mm. now he could focus now that he has his business he's got his pharmacy he's turning a profit he can focus on a young lady he meets named murda or is it minnie murda no we're not at minnie yet you remember minnie Mm -hmm. well it's not easy to forget it's not i know murda was young blonde blue-eyed and vulnerable he was obsessed immediately. He's the king of, like, love bombing. Murda lived in Minneapolis, and they met when he traveled there. To Murda, H.H. was exciting and came from the big city of Chicago. It all seemed amazing to her. He asked her to date by sending her a letter requesting a courtship. Mm. Like, so sweet. This guy's the best. He visited her often, and they were soon married January 28th, 1887. Second wife, right? Mm-hmm. Can you tally this? I want to keep track of these wives. Two. We're at two, we're at two yeah. Tally it with your cuss count over there, bitch. Whore. (laughs) 
Never, you know, so he never divorced his first wife, Clara, and now he's married to Murda. They moved her, he moved her to Chicago, and after a year, she became pregnant with their daughter, mm. another baby. They seemed to be quite the team until eventually things started to fall apart. He was always so interested in the young female customers, and Murda did not like that. Of course. Of course. Eventually, Murda would find herself sad and lonely in a strange city with a baby on the way. So she eventually moved back home with her parents and gave birth to baby Lucy, mm. which is such a sweet name. H.H. was said to be great with his daughter, a loving and tender parent who never had said anything or did anything poor to his daughter. He would go visit them for a while and eventually stopped. And you see this with serial killers throughout time that like they have two sides Mm -hmm. where they're a serial killer, but they're like so tender and loving toward their kid maybe. It's freaky. Um, And honestly, good for them that he was a deadbeat dad and husband. It probably saved their lives that he left and went on with his life. It was for the better. In 1888, H.H. wanted to expand his enterprise. He purchased land across from his pharmacy and used the fake name, another fake name, H.S. Campbell. This comes into play later again. He kind of like recycles these names. As his plans for this property came to fruition, he did so without the help of any architects. Because that would mean another person would know his true plans. His building was going to be beautiful, according to him, of course. Shops on the ground floor. Mm apartments on the second floor, and a third floor overlooking 63rd and Wallace in Chicago. However, he had odd plans. Odd plans. For example, he installed a chute built from a secret location on the second floor that led to the basement. Not intended for laundry. Bodies. Bodies. Let the bodies hit the floor. (laughs) He also planned for a large walk-in vault in his office. Mm Mm-hmm. Airtight, not for storing money or valuables. Bodies. Bodies. Further, he planned to install gas jets in the apartments through the building. Gas jets. Gas is in the type of gas that makes you pass out. <sighs> the second floor had 35 rooms set up, some people say, like a maze. And I have pictures that, like recreations and drawings that I can show you. I need to see it. I'll show you. They were killing rooms, if you will, set up to look like bedrooms, essentially. The hotel also had doors that led to nowhere, staircases that led nowhere. It was so confusing that the guests would get lost easily. It's just, it's, it's just a big, like, mindfuck. Imagine being there and... What you know now, it's mm-hmm. so ominous. He was like a puppet master of this place, only he knew it all. How did he not raise suspicion building all these strange things? Do you remember what I told you about how no one knew the plans but him? Mm-hmm. What was he doing? Because he was hiring contractors and then firing them. Or Ex- they'd quit. Yeah, because, exactly. He, it was kind of brilliant, honestly, and he didn't like to pay people. Well, so why he was would say, you if you're rich? Yeah. Rich people hmm. are the stingiest. That, well, we can say that because we're not rich. <laughs> He would pay so little to his contractors and the crew, or not at all, so they would quit and new guys would take over. And this was a constant rotating door, so no one no one worked from beginning to end. So nobody but him knew all the details of the murder castle. Murder castle. Murder castle. Construction gained a lot of attention around town. It was huge, an entire city block. Yeah. It took over a year to build, and he had sold his former pharmacy across the street to a bloke saying, you'll have no competition if you buy my pharmacy, it's all you're the only pharmacy around here. But then he opened one. He opened one in his hotel, <sighs> like an asshole. Jerk. He. I literally have the word jerk in my notes as the next word <laughs> right there. Jerk. 
No, don't look. Um, he would take oh, out. Look, don't look. Okay. He would take out credit to pay for things and never pay people back. He also went so far as taking out credit on the fake name H.S. Campbell. So when creditors would come literally knocking down the door, he would blame it on this fictitious person. What did his ID say? Do they have IDs back then? I think they were paper. <laughs> no, I'm on it. Like not laminated. They were. I'm telling you. That just made me think of the one um, Parks and Rec episode where oh, Ron. You mentioned Parks and Rec's in last episode too. Yeah. He wanted to get a permit, and this permit says, I can do what I want. <laughs> he just hand wrote it himself. That's, a, that's this. That's H.H. H. Holmes. I'm going to change my last name. Exactly. Scribble it out. Um, eventually, he was getting a lot of attention around town for this. Some good, some not so good. He was purchasing, meanwhile, he was purchasing chloroform in large amounts, for example. And this sparked some suspicion. Of course. Who? buy chloroform i'm gonna amazon okay look on amazon see how much we can get without getting arrested he continued to scam life insurance seemed to be his favorite at the time life insurance this is what he would do he would ask his employees to take out policies and make him the beneficiary and he would tell his employees that he'd give them a portion of the policy in cash now so they could enjoy their money but then when they would go missing who's getting all those funds when they would die is it's kind of really so weird though like if my if my boss was like hey can you take out life insurance and i'll I'll be yeah well think of it take out a policy for six thousand dollars and i'll give you three thousand right now that you can live on Hmm. okay sure i'm actually going to use the money while i'm alive and then they die and then he gets the six thousand he probably never gave them the three thousand so i tell you all this background to bring you up to speed on the World's Fair I started with mm-hmm. in last episode. This huge monumental event. The president was there. The president was here, The president was here. I know. Week. That's crazy. Different president. H.H. Um, knew the fair was coming. Oh, was it? <laughs> I mean, old. he was a little old. <laughs> um, he knew that it would bring a huge crowd. He knew his hotel needed to be ready in time. Yeah. His intentions were not to make money and be a rich hotel owner. It's just to kill people. He, yeah, he was more sinister. His intentions were to conduct his crimes and then burn it all to the ground. Oh, my god! Leaving no evidence behind, such as hidden bodies in storage chambers. Wouldn't it start to smell? Well, he used, that's what that quicklime was for that I mentioned um, in the last episode. Quicklime can kind of help with that. Sure. Meanwhile, during his whole planning, building, and execution of the hotel, he was still running a pharmacy and more scams constantly. It never stopped. That was from beginning to end, scam artist. He started selling drugs to cure alcohol, alcoholism and baldness. How do you go from like, <laughs> it's like, how do you decide, I'm going to cure alcoholism, but also baldness. Yeah, like, where, hair grow back. How do you go from one extreme to the other? I don't know. As, a, as like a business owner. Let me assure you, these drugs did not work. Uh, oh, thank you Otherwise, for Otherwise, you know what I mean? I mean, maybe there's Rogaine now. That's where it started from. <laughs> from this man. Once construction of the hotel was nearly complete, or as the, of the murder castle, he built basically a huge kiln in the basement. Mm. Evidence. A large fireproof brick box that was supposedly two feet high, two feet wide, and long and heated by fire. He told those who helped him build it that he needed it to be hot enough to incinerate anything. Oh, gosh. And the reason being... Because he had a glass bending company, duh, called Warner Glass Bending Company, and you need really hot fire to bend glass. The final kiln would burn to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The glass bending company did not exist. No. This was, exactly, right? There was also a rack installed in the basement. A rack? To define, it's an ancient torture device. What do you imagine 
And I want to. I'm curious of the listeners, unless unless you know when you hear a torture device called a rack. I feel like a hang, like to hang from. I thought that too. I pictured like a fencing, like fencing hanging from the ceiling, and you're attached. That's not what it is. What is it? Well. Where is it? Oh, <laughs> I don't know what it is. A rack is a rectangular. You got to picture it, okay? okay? A rectangular device that is made of two rollers. A person's wrists are tied to one roller and their ankles to the other. Once a victim is attached, the rollers can be pulled away using like a hand and levy. I don't like this. Pulls on the joints of the body. I don't like this. Opposite ways until they. Oh, I'm going to plug my ears. Well, I'll stop there. You just know what happens to the body. Just say it and I'm going to plug my ears. No, that's it. You, If you know, you know. It's pulling your joints ah! apart and ripping off ah! your... <laughs> I said plug my ears. No, I'm waiting till you stop. No, it's that's what it is. So casually moving on. Let's go. Um, he continued to send money. He did for a long time send money to, back to his wife and daughter, Lucy, the recent one. Yeah. And of course, took out a life insurance policy on his baby daughter, Lucy. But I, I let me throw this out before anything. Lucy Holmes reportedly did grow up to be a successful school teacher in Minnesota. She did, supposedly, thankfully, because she was not raised by her psychopathic mm-hmm. father. Okay. That's something that I found. I was like, oh, something out of here. When he started hiring workers for his hotel, some people around town thought it was strange that many of the young women he'd hire would just up and leave town. Like, just gone. Yeah. Right? And Holmes also met and befriended a man named Benjamin Petizel, who we will talk a lot about in part two. Okay. He's very important in this story. Petizel was unfortunately known as an alcoholic, but needed to support his wife and children. Was he bald bald too? Maybe that's where you got the idea. He sort of became Holmes's right-hand man. He was aware and would help in some of the scams going on. But it is said, he was, although he was like his partner in crime, that he didn't know about the the murders, supposedly. So Mm. there is that. He was just kind of like scamming with him. Could you imagine like your friend and your buddy, you're like, is a murderer and you didn't know no like i could be a murderer and you wouldn't know i would know what if i just like play this like casual like oh, i don't like true crime but really i am a murderer <laughs> it's not true <laughs> you can't get away with it i have cameras in your closet and in your house so i watch you constantly <laughs> Damn it. what if that was the truth oh. <laughs> hh's hotel over time became known as just the castle around town, being that it was so enormous. Could you imagine? I'm going to go stay at the murder castle. No, no, that didn't come out till later. Mm. I'm going to go stay at the castle. Yes. Yeah, the murder castle. Murder. Holmes just went on thinking life was great, scamming creditors, trying to fulfill his lifelong dreams, apparently. So now let's chat about a different man that he befriended. And now we're going to kind of get into some more detailed stories. Ned. Ned <laughs> was a man he met, and he had a wife named Julia and a daughter named Pearl. Things started out great being in the presence and working for Holmes because he like looked up to him, Ned Ned did. Over time, just like everything in this repeating pattern, things went downhill. Rumors began around town that Holmes and Ned's wife, Julia, Uh mm -hmm, had a thing going on. Ned didn't want to believe it. Uh Uh-uh. He admired Holmes. Why would he go after my wife? Behind my back, we're friends. I look up to this man. Ned did start to notice how Julia looked at him, though. Uh And he was still, HH at the time was young. He was still under 30 and had an empire while Ned was considered himself just like a small jeweler around town, not as successful in his eyes. So HH being the gentleman he was, wanted to help his friend get a leg up in life and offered to sell Ned his pharmacy on the ground floor. It was a generous offer from Holmes, one that Ned couldn't refuse. So I'm gonna explain it. The deal was that Holmes would increase, because he now, Ned did start working for him, okay? So Holmes would increase his salary. From $12 a week to 18 So he's paying Ned 
instead of $12, $18 a week. But Holmes would keep the extra $6, the difference, and Ned would still make $12 an hour, which is still not much in today's times, never having to deal with the handling of money. So to Ned, he's making the same amount of money, but now he owns the pharmacy. And all his increase in pay is all going toward purchasing this pharmacy. Okay. Does that make sense? Sure. Holmes promised to take care of all of the necessary paperwork for selling Ned the pharmacy, and Ned accepted. Oh, one more part of the deal that I forgot to mention. Ned should really take out a life insurance policy sure, on himself forgot. and his daughter, oh, yes. right? Yes. So all things are on the up and up in case anything ever happened, yes. but Ned did not take the, take the bait. Ooh. He's like the only person in this damn story. He's like, nope. Now, once Ned was working in his own pharmacy that he owned, something strange started to happen. Creditors began showing up asking for their payments. For, from Ned? From, yeah, from Ned. Stating that the mortgage had not in fact, been paid at all. Uh-oh. And the goods Ned was selling were all bought on credit and were never paid for either. Rut row. Rut <laughs> Where did that come from? I liked so it. Scooby-Doo? So we are like Scooby-Doo. So are you Velma or are you Daphne? Or are you, um, who's... Shaggy. Shaggy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't what sleep did... on Shaggy because Shaggy usually was the one who kind of like led to the... I knew somebody who looked like Shaggy. Were they hot? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Were you attracted to yeah. them? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Ned was found himself, great, I'm a business owner, and huge debt. When he went to Holmes, he was so, Holmes was so sympathetic. He was known to be like, oh, like a charmer. Yeah. He assured Ned that since he now had a thriving business, debt was just part of it. Like, yeah. this is just a part of the deal. This is what being a business owner is like, and it was all a scam. And H.H. would remind Ned, buddy, the sale of this pharmacy is final. Buddy. (laughs) With his sympathies, of course. Of course. This is final. With the stress of the business, the constant rumors of his wife, Fook and Holmes, and the tension (laughs) of just life, his marriage fell apart and Ned left town. Oh, Ned. Good for him. After this, Holmes eventually lost interest in Julia. Yeah. Because guess what? Julia, her ass stayed behind because they were having an affair. Yes, I knew it. They were doing it behind closed doors. He lost interest in her because he found, he began to find her daughter Pearl annoying to him. And this was it. Ned left and the allure is over. The chase is gone. Yeah, it's not fun anymore. How many guys have you known like this minus the murder? I mean, so in in November, I know, in November of 1891, Julia became pregnant oh, with Holmes's good baby. Oh, Lord. Funny how that happens. Holmes reacted in a calming, soothing, loving manner, you would think. He caressed her face. You can imagine it. And you can imagine him assuring her, everything's going to work out fine. It's going to be okay. Being the 1800s, he had to marry her now because oh, she's gosh. pregnant. Well, there we go. Third one. Third, third. No, no, no. Just wait. Just wait. Oh. Hold your horses there, lady. I already marked it. The, all Julia wanted was to be with him and get married anyway. So Holmes finally agreed. Yes. No. Let's get married. He promised her a life of leisure and wealth. Leisure and wealth. Under one condition. This is going to just, this is going to hurt. No. He will marry her if she allows him to perform an abortion on her. I was going to say abort the baby. He promised he would use chloroform on her and that she would feel nothing. That she would just lay down. (laughs) It's horrible. Take a short nap. And since he was a doctor, he would take care of everything. And Julia agreed. Oh, gosh. The the thing here that it makes me sick to my stomach, I mean, we all know what's going to happen. It's that your partner, your lover, I mean, you fell in love with him and he made promises to you. Like, d- it comes with this price? That 
I don't like this. I don't like it. It's the situation. It's not anything against abortion. You do. We, I fully believe we have the right to choose our own bodies. But he manipulated her into this situation. And that's what's fucked up. He said they could have children later, but now just wasn't the time. There was too much work, and the fair was coming, girl. Mm. So on Christmas Eve, with snow falling outside on a beautiful landscape, Julia put her daughter Pearl to bed in her room, telling her she'll see her in the morning for Christmas and presents. Mm -mm. And Julia went with Holmes into a room of the murder castle. There was a table in the room with a white linen on top, surgical tools on a tray. There were some things that were probably a little off to Julia as well. And I'm going to use the word maybe and possibly here. Okay. I wasn't there. I don't have photos. <laughs> a bone saw, an abdomen retractor, a tray pan, which is used to perforate the skull. You can imagine. Now, these accounts are as mentioned in Devil in the White City, the book I mentioned by mm -hmm. Eric Larson. Some are speculation. Some are facts. Holmes did write a memoir and did a lot of confessions at the end of his life, but he also took a lot of things back. So you don't know fully what's true and what's not mm -hmm. true with him. But in Devil in the White City, um, he did a beautiful job, that author, of kind of painting a picture for you and helping you to imagine what probably could have or even in some case did happen. I don't like it. Imagine Holmes wearing a white apron with the cuffs rolled back. Probably not wearing a surgical mask. Imagine him probably not bothering to wash his hands. And that, just those details, when you think of it that way, it makes you sick. There was apparently no need, right? He took her by the hand and led her to the surgical table where she laid down. He used chloroform to put her to sleep. But uh. the endless sleep. He then went to Pearl's room and did the same oh. thing to her using chloroform. What happened behind closed doors, we're never going to fully know, but he killed her and her daughter. The next day was Christmas Day. In the hotel was Julia's good friend, Mrs. Crow, who was confused that Julia and Pearl never showed up because they planned on morning festivities for mm -hmm. Christmas morning. It was strange, so Mrs. Crow left a note for Julia, like, because there's, you know, can't leave you a voicemail, can't send you a text, um, say, let, she had to go out and basically visit her family. She was due to arrive at a family's house at 10 or had to leave at 10. But come, come get the th treats I left, the gifts for Pearl. Like, get your, and then when Mrs. Crow returned home by 11 p.m. that evening, realized Julia and Pearl had never come by. Where were they? And she did pride, or what is the word? Pry. Pry probe when asked hh stated that julia and pearl left town to davenport iowa because they had to attend a wedding mrs crow don't you know dumbass he's the dumbass oh. julia and pearl were never seen alive again now do you know what it means to be an articulator you told me isn't that where they the body i realized when i was listening back that i don't think i fully explained what articulation truly means I kind of brought it up in the intro to this episode. It's the art of stripping the flesh from the human bodies, reassembling or articulating the bones to form a complete skeleton for the purpose of display in a doctor's office or classroom. At the time, as we know, real human skeletons were used. H.H. knew how to do this, being that he went to medical school. Yeah. Just after Christmas, he had a colleague come to the hotel and into an apartment where a female body lay fully skinned. So H.H. kind of started it, and he hired this man to finish it. All in the name of research, according to Holmes. He offered this man named Charles Chapel $36, which is about 1100 today, to cleanse the bones and return them to him 
return to him a fully articulated articulated Ugh. skeleton. Ugh. I would imagine cleansing bones would involve a process bleaching. You yeah. Know? I don't know, like when you find a sand dollar and you bleach it and it turns white. I've never done that. I know. I did that when I was in high you're school. Not supposed to. I know, and I learned. I'm like, wait, you're basically killing the yeah. sand dollar. Okay. I did say something to somebody once. They had a whole collection on their thing, and we went over there and said, like, you can't take those. You got to put them back. Good for you. Yeah. I've taught my children that too when we go to the beach, and oh, I can't wait to go to the beach again. I know. Oh, I love our. We love our beaches, and okay, let's not get into that right no. now. Um, yeah, you're not supposed to take live animals. There's signs, and when I was a kid, I was an asshole, but who wasn't? Um, me. To, Whatever. That's you're an asshole now. You make up for lost time. Oh. <laughs> okay. So HH just got like the process started for this body. And I, I don't know, forgive me, I don't know what he told Chapel where he got this body from. I imagine he could have said she passed away in the hotel, the family approved for you to take it. I don't know. Yeah. How did this doctor, scientist doing performing the articulation not be like, What the fuck, bro? Like yeah. where'd you get this dead body? He wrote it on a piece of paper. Yeah, everything's, it's official. It's a document. Chapel was a specialist in the field, he agreed, and once HH received the female skeleton a time later, he sold it to a medical school for many times over what he paid Chapel. So he banked. And it's whose body scary. could it have been? Julia's. Julia, we can assume Julia's body. Julia or Julia? Julia. Oh. And daughter Pearl. I have shared with you that HH is a scammer. He commits multiple account uh, accounts of insurance fraud and evades creditors constantly. I also shared a little bit about his love life. So now enter... Emmeline. Emmeline. It's a beautiful name. It is. Emmeline was a stenographer at a doctor's office, and she was described as, like all of them, blonde and beautiful and 24 years old. Emmeline was warm and outgoing and seemed to just make friends easily. Okay, I realized in our last episode, too, that I didn't explain what a stenographer is. I don't know if everyone knows. It's not a secretary, exactly. I, I had to, like, be sure, and I realized I never explained it. It's someone who can type super fast and transcribe, transcribe like, in shorthand, like a courthouse reporter. Mm. Exactly. So he can have records. After hearing about her from a buddy, Holmes offered her a job without even meeting her. I could imagine his friend was like, dude, she's hot. And he was like, hired. <laughs> Done. <laughs> oh, and she could type. She accepted <laughs> right away and was off to Chicago. So he rented a room at a nearby, or she rented a room at a nearby boarding house, which was like where people used to stay back then. It was very common. Upon meeting Emmeline, he was smitten with her. Like every other woman. Mm -hmm. Every time. Buys her flowers, takes her to the opera house, gives her a bicycle. <laughs> the usual. And just like this pattern of every abusive man. Before the abuse, they would just spend evenings together, biking along the streets of Chicago, and just like had a beautiful courtship. Together, they had the looks, and he had the money. Yeah. So as the legend has it, a day came where an old associate of HH came looking for him at the hotel, as they all did. And this man met Emmeline. And there's notes of this, and that this particular day it was reported, HH wasn't there. Uh-uh. Emmeline and the man got to talking, and he warned her, like, he, you can't trust her. And there's a quote. Him. Yeah, you can't trust him. Here's the quote. He was a bad lot, and she had better have little to do with him and get away from him as soon as possible. Yikes. So people did. People were suspicious yeah. of him. Do you think she listened? No. No. She was like... Wined and dined. <laughs> exactly. While rumors started to spread about HH and Emmeline, it became clear to other hotel residents that Emmeline was infatuated because she started making friends. She was supposedly a very sweet woman. She loved him. She viewed him as warm, calming, and glamorous. Glamorous. He was like someone she had never met before, which it kind of you kind of hear quite often, like mysterious in a way. He confided in her that he was the son of an English lord. <laughs> And she wasn't allowed to tell any of her girlfriends. It was a secret. 
Emmeline was like you and me. Like, she spilled the gossip to her closest girlfriends. But she's like, you, girl, you can't tell anyone. But my man is the son of it. I'm not supposed to tell, but you can't tell. It was all bullshit. Yeah. In October of that year of 1892, Emmeline's second cousins came for a visit to Chicago. Dr. and Mrs., and their names are Dr. and Mrs. B.J. Sagrand. Dr. Sagrand was working on, like, a history of their family, mm-hmm. so he wanted to meet her because they hadn't met before, like a family treat. People did this back then, you know, actually traveled. You didn't, there was no, like, 23andMe or what's it called? Yeah, I think that's it. So Emmeline invited them to the hotel. H.H. was not there, and Emmeline gave them the grand tour. And this, di- this is the dichotomy of it, the beautiful and the horrible of how it's explained. It's so interesting to me. So Emmeline shows her family around and points out the beauty, the transformative nature, and that it would be a huge meeting spot for the World's Fair. She was so excited to show them around, but her cousin did not view it the same. And I love this. He reportedly stated that the hotel was built with low-grade lumber. (laughs) HH clearly didn't use an architect. Slip-shod carpentry. He said passages veered at odd angles and the hallways were dark and dingy. Like it didn't, like light just didn't reach properly. It was just, he didn't like it. Later after the cousins had come and gone, HH proposed marriage to Emmeline, promising a honeymoon in Europe. She said yes. Let's not even tally just the marriages. We could tally the engagements. This is now his fourth that we know of. So here we are. Uh, later around Christmas time again. Again. Emmeline stated to her friends that she was going home to Indiana for the holiday. She was reported to be excited and happy to see her family and a friend described her as being like happy as a child which is like about visiting home Mm. and like if if my daughters aren't happy as a child to visit me at home then I don't want it because that's just so cute Mm -hmm. Um, when they grow up I mean. The same friend Mrs. Lawrence was her name by the way reported that Emmeline as it got closer to this time started acting different about homes. She was kind of picking up on things. She stopped being giddy and excited, as you would expect for someone who had just been engaged. And she seemed just like off to her. So Mrs. Lawrence had the idea that Emmeline was going to leave HH. She was going to leave him. Why do you ask? Well, you didn't ask, but I'm going to tell you. (laughs) Um, She started to pick up on his proclivities, his oddness. Like maybe she heard rumors about him not paying his debts. She also had that, her cousin, kind of like that odd interaction. She had that warning from the friend that came that he was making bad credit deals, that he was a liar, that he was a scammer. And the day came where Emmeline was just gone. This is wild to me because she never said bye to her friends. She was just gone. And HH's response was that she up and married an Englishman. Sure. He even produced a wedding announcement as proof, oh, like printed out that he said Emmeline mailed him after she got oh married. Oh, gosh. Like, the, oddly enough, one was also sent to her family <sighs> in her handwriting. Emmeline's family received the announcement, and it's like, did he forge it? Did he force her to write it under duress before she died or before he killed her? Whatever he did to her? I don't know. Hmm. You tell me. And to top it off, which is more traumatizing, her hometown did like an ad in the paper, not an ad, did an announcement in the newspaper about her marriage and that she moved off to England to this man with this fake name. Hmm. She was never seen again. Just, it was, it was left to assume that maybe she died in London and just never reached home again. Her friend that was local in Chicago, she had a keen eye. In a sense. She didn't believe the whole story. She said that she started questioning HH about this. And he always had an excuse. Of course. Just a bullshit answer. She said the day after Emmeline disappeared that she saw 
she noted 7 p.m. the day after, two men helped H.H. carry a trunk down the stairs of the hotel. Oh, gosh. It was a brand new trunk and was about four feet long. Oh, it gives me the chills. And Mrs. Lawrence said that she saw a wagon arrive and take it away. This friend claimed that she just knew, knew H.H. Yeah. killed her. Knew it. But did she go to the police? No. Did she fucking move out of the building? No. She stayed. Not, and I'm not blaming her, but it's just like, see something, say something. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just relatively new, that saying. And it's just so sad that her parents were left thinking she up, left, got married, yeah. and this, that was, they probably lived the rest of her their lives, like, wondering. The reality, though, was that H.H. sent her skinless body Ew. to his friend, his colleague, Charles um, I keep wanting to say Char- Charlie Chaplin, but it's Charles Chapel, Chapel, the articulator, to have it prepared as a beautiful skeleton. And it was later given to the LaSalle La Medical College of Chicago. I wonder if any of those are still around. I know. You know, like, what if you go in there and you're like, cool bones. I know. And it's the murder. I know. My body. My wonderful friend Mirna, who I mentioned who lives in Chicago, she said she said that at the Fields Museum in Chicago, they have a ton of artifacts from the World's Fair Ooh. that you can go see them. But I wonder if they have artifacts, mm, these kind of artifacts. I doubt it. I would hope not. Like the bones that you're talking about. Yeah. This is where Minnie comes in. Oh, Minnie. Okay. I gave you a lot of Minnie's story in our intro to this episode, our last episode. So here's a rundown, a recap. HH basically went, only went after Minnie for what? Her money. So what do you, talk to me a little bit. What do you remember about Minnie's story? She moved from, I can't remember where she moved from, Texas? Was it Mm -hmm. Texas? Yeah. Oh, I'm surprised I remembered that. I know. And her family had land that she had, and then he made her sign it over. Mm Mm-hmm. And then her sister came. Yeah, Anna. And they were going to travel the world, and they both died. And they both died at the end. Yeah, I mean, that's basically it. I'm going to give a, a recap here. She was raised by her rich uncle because her parents had passed away oh, yeah. and was left a valuable estate valued around between $1 to $3 million today. She was known as being a plain Jane. Yes, bland. Wasn't it bland? <laughs> yes. I hate that word. I like it. Not the usual type of woman that people saw him with. As I've mentioned enough times in this episode, he wooed her, married her. Third marriage. He wooed her, married her, and made, oh, in a private ceremony, right? Yeah. Just us and a, and a minister. Made all kinds of promises. She initially worked for him and lived at the hotel, but his interest in other women and things he liked to do to them made Minnie's presence inconvenient. Mm-hmm. So H.H. found a house across town that he had rented the top floor of. Henry Gordon, an alias, rented this place and pleased his tenant by paying 40 bucks cash up front, saying that he and his wife would be moving in. June 1st, go ahead. 40 bucks. I know. Well, then. June 1st, 1893, H.H. and Minnie moved into the place, and the landlord would take note that H.H. seemed very friendly to his wife on the outside, by the way. But what's new? He had a lifetime of perfecting charm on the outside and being a demon on the inside. This was right before the time that her sister Anna came to visit and then decided to stay in Chicago for the summer with her sister. Anna, if you remember, was extremely skeptical. She's like, girl, no. But once arriving and meeting him and was mesmerized by him and the fair, she ended up calling him brother Henry, brother Harry, whatever name he gave. I mentioned in Murder at the Fair that he promised the girls a trip to Maine, New York, and then finally Germany, Mm -hmm. which is what you kind of just mentioned. And that if Anna liked it there, he would pay for her to stay and study art. I got you, girl. This plan, this being the plan, Anna wrote a letter to her aunt back home stating her departure, like a send-off. Yeah. 
that's just the I'll the back. backstory that HH needed. You know, it's the uh, the alibi. Yeah. Is that the right word? Thus ensuring that no one would come looking for her. What's important about the fact that she wrote a letter home is that she had no property in her name. The estate was left to her sister. But her stating that she was going abroad, like, really cut the cord there. So it's, like, financially cutting that cord. Like, there would be no fighting over if Minnie died, where would the home go? Mm-hmm. The estate go. When they were supposed to go on their trip, HH took Anna on a tour of the hotel so she could see it in person. But he tricked Anna into going into his vault of his office. She, you know, screamed, banged to get out. And HH had it manufactured that he could barely even hear her wails and bangs from the outside. The vault was airtight with iron walls insulated with mineral wool. Even he could barely hear her. He realized that if he listened to the pipes, he could hear the cries from inside. And it is said that possibly he would gain sexual pleasure from these sounds. It's just awful. Guys were disgusting. I know. Ew. After this, Holmes was free and rich. Well, land rich, yes. if you will. He was already rich. And he was back at the World's Fair with a new lady on his arm. Oh, Lord. The, how long did the fair last? You said six months. Six months. So by the time his wife and her sister were gone, he was now with another woman. This would be the last woman on his arms, Georgiana Yoke. This would be the final one in the story. Where's her name? Show me. Georgiana Yoke. Oh. A blonde-haired, blue-eyed beauty, exactly, who looked very young for her age. She was a saleswoman at a department store. I'm going to say the name of the store. Forgive me. Sears. (laughs) Macy's. Schleisinger and Meyer. Oh, okay. And grew up in Franklin, Indiana. In 1891, like so many other young women, she moved to the city for a chance, for a change of pace and a chance at a new and exciting life. Of course. Georgiana was 23 at the time when she met HH at the department store. She was instantly what in love and smitten she also felt bad for him because according to him poor guy he had no family around his last surviving uncle had recently passed away Mm. and he told georgiana that his uncle left him property in fort worth texas oh so nice it's minnie's fucking property oh it makes me so mad i just want to punch it punch it (laughs) punch it he whined and dined her like, oh, I don't even need to say it. I mean, yeah. gifts, dinners, diamond earrings, yeah. you know. And during a trip to the fair, he proposed to her. Oh, gosh. Asked her to be his wife. And, of course, what do you think she said? Uh, yes. A very emphatic, yes. <laughs> Around this time, the fair was coming to an end. And Holmes realized he needed to leave Chicago. He was such a huge scam artist, and his debts were starting to creep up on him. Finally. Finally. Now being who he was... He didn't just pack his shit and leave. He tried and set fire to the top floor of the castle. Idiot. Going out with a flare, he just wanted insurance money. Sure, as we all do. Okay, to remove evidence, as we talked about. Always a scam, artor, a scam artist at heart. Arter. The scam artor. So using an- the same alias or another alias, Hiram S. Campbell, he claimed to need $6,000 from the insurance company. Okay. I don't even know what it is today. Even though... An investigation by the insurance company was conducted. They never found evidence of arson. So they said, okay, yeah, you can, we'll, we'll give you the $6,000 to fix the damages. But this person, H, or Hiram S. Campbell, needs to come in person to collect. We need to see, because yeah. we know what you look like. We need to see this person oh, come. No. He never collected the money. Of course. He, that was like probably the first time where he was like, shit. Yeah. Being that things started going awry in all areas, like detectives looking for the missing women starting to show up, the money never getting claimed, he decided, I gotta get, I, out. I gotta get out. He found himself in a pickle and had like 
there was one meeting where he had like an intervention of creditors and they kind of all gathered together and confronted him requesting their money back. He owed more than 50 grand at the time, which today is like oh 9.4 million dollars. So you see why he wanted to get out of Dodge. Yeah. He brought his good buddy mentioned earlier, Benjamin Patizel. Okay. Benjamin was having trouble himself. Mm. Benjamin's the one who I said had alcohol troubles, a wife and children. He was broke. He was suffering poorly with his addiction. He needed homes to pay him more money, to keep him quiet about everything Benjamin knew, because this is the only person that we know of that was aware of his scams. Holmes came up with a plan, an idea. Of course. An idea that would lead to a fake death, an actual dead body, three missing children, a wild goose chase, and a noose. Um, oh gosh. And this is where I'm going to stop for today. <sighs> I'm. Why are you doing that noise? Because it's, I, I mean, I want to know, what, I, I'm not going to Google him and find out what happened, but I just want to know what happens. I know. To him. I'm going to leave you here and you will have to tune in next episode for the conclusion of True Crime Edition, America's First Serial Killer, H.H. Holmes. Triple H. No. Oh, yes. H cubed. <laughs> you really stink at math. That was I'm basic. awful at math. Oh, my gosh. This is just, he freaks me out. I want to see his picture. Oh, I'll show you right now. Here's his picture. Not sure. as attractive as he's described. What well, do you the think? The hat. And he wore his mustache very well. He wore his beefy mustache very but well. That's a very beefy mustache. What do you think of how he looks? I mean, I could see why women would find him attractive. It's... I know. It's just he's creepy. Because we know. I know. He has a descendant, a great-great-grandson, who has done a like a major documentary that had multiple episodes trying to see if he was Jack the Ripper. And his great-great-grandson has been in quite a few things in the media and just getting his story Could you out imagine there. like that's no. your grandpa? No, I couldn't imagine being related. No. I mean, maybe we all are related to someone We're probably. that... <laughs> Some murderers. Oh my gosh, you already admitted to it. I did. So, what are those tallies over there? Oh, um, three marriages and five, ten, fifteen, twenty-four cusses. Oh, yeah. What am I going to do with this information moving forward? Nothing. What's going to happen here? We're just going to continue to cuss, <laughs> and you're going to continue to not. That's a lie. You're a lying liar. Anyway, you know where to find us. Thank you for tuning in. We love you. We love you. First responders from all around. And linemen. And linemen. And not just them. Honestly, tons of community members have come out of the woodworks to help around here. Have you seen the the, the drama on TikTok? The women, the the wives of the linemen <laughs> yeah. are calling them Bucket Bunny. The girls <laughs> Bucket Bunny. I had explained to Jake. He goes, what does that mean, a Bucket Bunny? <laughs> If you're a bucket bunny, stop it. Stop it. Leave them alone. They have wives. And just because he's not wearing a ring doesn't mean he's not married. Look for the tan line. Look for the tan line. <laughs> yeah, look for that. That'll give it away right there. Bucket bunnies, calm down. <laughs> Pump the brakes. Pump the brakes. All right, we love you guys. Bye. And remember to live, laugh, and never murder. Don't be like H.H. H. Holmes. Peace. Bye.